0: Just kind of growing up with a single mom who worked really hard and struggled really, really hard and really courageously, and going through periods in our lives where there wasn't enough food. And, you know, when you grow up with enough food, you think about food.
1: I'm Erin Hardnett. And I'm Amber Mitchell, and you're listening to Tilling the Soil, a Whitney Plantation podcast.
2: In this season of Tilling the Soil, we will be exploring various conversations surrounding the environment. Today on Tilling the Soil, we speak to Dr. Keela Wazana Tompkins, Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and English, to talk about eating culture and the politics of eating and race in the United States. Really excited to speak with you today. Um, to begin, can you give us us in the audience a, a bit of more information about yourself?
0: Yeah. I was uh, born in Canada, but I was raised in a North African family. My family's um, from North Africa. And for a lot of historical reasons, food and cultural identity, questions of class, questions of belonging, questions of migration and diaspora, different, different diasporas, really kind of dominated how my family talked about itself when I was growing up. And that just sort of has chased me my whole life. I I did my my BA thesis writing about food. I was also at the same time working in the gay and lesbian press, trying to get anybody to give me a restaurant column. So I I wrote the restaurant column in the gay and lesbian press in Toronto for a long time, not a long time, a short time. And then I went on to graduate school, I went on to do a master's in English, and then a PhD at Stanford, and ended up focusing on 19th century US literature because and US studies really so like history and literature together, because like certainly as an immigrant to the United States coming from Canada, you know, we live kind of in the shadow of the U.S., but it's just kind of wildly exotic. At the same time, it's both kind of a everyday presence lurking in our lives and also just wildly strange. And I really wanted to kind of understand the U.S. And so I ended up writing about food and U.S. history and specifically through the lens of race, gender and sexuality. Amazing.
2: Thank you so much. Also in your bio, I noted that like you are not just like a scholarly writer, but you also have done some like journalistic work. Can you elaborate more on that? Because you did sure. just mention that you had a column for the gay and lesbian press, but, you know, your other professional lives sure. is not your first professional life. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, I got into my PhD program and I, on the same day that I also got into the um, master's in journalism at Columbia And it was like a real crossroads in my life. I was also offered a job at a TV station at kind of like the PBS, one of the PBS kind of like stations in Canada. And it was a real crossroads for me because I knew that I wanted to write about food. But the question for me was like, where could I go and ask the big questions, really big questions that when I was making that decision, wanting to be someone who wrote about food meant either doing, you know, recipe development, writing for food magazines, which is all of it just honorable work, and or writing kind of for the women's pages, like the lifestyle pages, and really big questions of like race and class and bodies and sexuality, and world history in relation to food was kind of like a niche European thing a little bit, but like no one in the academy or in the kind of press was doing that. So I think of myself as a writer and a scholar first, and I'm also an academic because that's where I chose to make my bread as it were, but I'm mostly a writer. And so I want my writing, the the, the thing that that a writer can ask for most is that their writing travels and that their writing gets used and taken up. And so, yeah, I've written, I've written for online fora. I've done a little bit of journalism. Recently, I wrote a piece for uh, the Los Angeles Review of Books that I'm going to turn into a book now. And I continue to do my scholarly work as well.
2: Okay, amazing. You also mentioned in your intro that it was your family that inspired you to kind of like take this path down towards exploring eating, culture, food, race, and the like. So what about your upbringing, like actually inspired your course of study?
0: Uh, Poverty. (laughs) It's to be real. I think, just being an immigrant family and being the child of a single mom, but also being from a family that grew up under French colonialism in North Africa, we had a whole bunch of cultural capital because we spoke French and we had find like a story of a lot of North African migrants of that generation is that like, we didn't have money, but we had taste. <laughs> and so the kind of tension between that was always really interesting to me. But but truly also just kind of growing up with a single mom who worked really hard and struggled really, really hard and really courageously, and going through periods in our lives where there wasn't enough food. And you know, when you grow up with no- enough food, you think about food, you know, like, let me not overclaim that that this is it's sort of like feast and famine, not the kinds of generational poverty that other people have experienced. That's not my story. But yeah, that's, I think really where it comes from.
2: Yeah, no, I I definitely hear you on that. I also grew up with a single mother and food was always kind of a thought. She actually like very much had me and my older sister in the kitchen when we were growing up to like, make sure that we knew how to feed ourselves, but also making sure that, you know, like we knew where our food was coming from and appreciative of the things that we were putting into our bodies. So on that note, your first book is called Racial Indigestion. Can you Mm -hmm. give us a little bit of insight into the title?
0: Sure. So Racial Indigestion is about the kind of politicization of eating as an issue for defining race in the 19th century United States during the period of the enslavement of African peoples and after so-called emancipation up until the early 20th century. And it began for me with a a class in 19th century literature in which we were reading Uncle Tom's Cabin and the kind of eponymous chapter, chapter four, Uncle Tom's Cabin has a lot of food imagery in it and a lot of, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe's profound abolitionist by which I mean 19th century white women's abolitionist racism is about depicting black women, but particularly black children as edible objects. And I really just, as someone who was interested in food and in in the kind of politicization, uh, uh, not so much of, it took me a long time to realize that I was not really interested in food, but I was really interested in eating. And so that became the kind of central image of the book where I tried to account for basically the hunger of whiteness, (laughs) the hungry, hungry, hungriness that is the constantly devouring machine of of American whiteness. So it began with that sort of image and that the indigestion part came as I looked at black writers like uh, Harriet Wilson and others who push back and who are really aware of that image And who I I saw, there was a kind of tension between this sort of like devouring whiteness and just blackness, which was like, no, I will not be devoured. So it was really about that kind of like disruption a refusal to be devoured. Then I mean, I guess the other part of it is that the very one to one relationship in the 19th century, which I think has never gone away between what you eat and what your body is made of, and who you are. It's a very basic algebra, but I mean, I think you'll hear almost any nineteenth-centuryist you talk to say that the nineteenth century isn't over, and that the kind, the kind of thinking about race and thinking about the kind of essentialism and totality of racial thinking in the nineteenth century continues to be with us today. So it was my way of sort of thinking about race today in and through its foundations in the 19th century. And so like, for instance, one thing would be the utter fragility of whiteness, and it's constantly breaking down. But the paradox that that fragility is also aggression and fragility is also a claim to supremacy and privilege and to rights to protection. So looking at all the kind of like, white supremacist freaking out that happens in the 19th century, and trying to account for how aggressive that fragility is, but in and through the trope of uh, food and
2: eating itself. Okay, so like jumping off of that, clearly eating is very political, you know, as you were just saying, you're thinking about the ways that like whiteness is constructed through eating habits, eating culture. Can you... Speak a bit more towards the role that eating played in the American Imperial Project. Sure.
0: So where to start with that? I mean, one way is to begin with really you know, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the French, and the British imperial projects. And to say that imperialism has always been about the circulation of commodities and whether those commodities are stolen peoples or whether those commodities are tea or rum or sugar or cotton or wood or, you know, whatever. And this is, you know, I'm drawing on two people that have been really formative for me. The one is um, Sylvia Winters, the Caribbeanist, philosopher thinking about the place of aesthetics in the creation of history of modernity, but also in terms of like the creation of the idea of the human in the modern, which is to say whiteness as the as a kind of totem of of humanity as against everyone else. But also thinking with Sidney Mintz and his work on sugar, and the kind of centrality of sugar and other kinds of energizing cheap carbohydrate food in creating industrialism in Europe and in industrialized Northern Europe. So the kidnapping and displacement and stealing of African life and to be placed in the Caribbean in particular with Cuba and and San Domingue and other places, but also Latin America as labor to produce Free labor, free stolen labor, extracted labor in these death machines called sugar plantations to create carbohydrate energy to fuel industrial labor in the North is kind of a a sort of like really classic recirculation of human energy in and through modernity, but also a kind of reorganization of like the everyday sensory life of what it means to live under racial capitalism. So that's sort of what really interests me right now is thinking with how particular commodities and particular and different, differently cruel labor regimes are shaped and impacted by the circulation of commodities, first in and through empire, and then in and through different empires. And then on top of that, through the kind of like calcification of, of modern racial capital, and then neoliberal capital on top of that. Interesting,
2: very interesting. I find myself also just kind of reflecting on the reality that Amber and I are currently sitting at Whitney Plantation, which is a former and current sugar plantation, like there's literally sugar growing less than a half mile away from us. That is so interesting to think about, you know, like the circulation of sugar produced in the Americas as fueling the industrial revolution in Europe, which in itself was like a very exploitative system of labor. And also,
0: but also that the like what Sid Mintz and others, you know, Cedric Robinson, Eric Williams, in particular, you know, Caribbean historians uh, teach us is that the modern work regimes of capitalism are worked out on in and through the extraction of Black energy and Black life on the sugar plantation and on the cotton plantation. So it's not like oh, there's like these, you know, this, right? Like you're nodding, but like, there's like, it's not like, oh, like there's these factories, this Fordist, this incredible Fordist revolution of organized assembly line labor. Is like, no, honey, that was worked out in through black life. That is through the extraction of black life. Um, So that the flow goes actually from the Caribbean and Latin America into the the so-called developed industrialized North.
2: Definitely. And like New Orleans as like a port, yeah, where a lot of cotton passed through. Also, like right. we're on the German coast, and yes, they're, the German coast is more known for production of sugar, but obviously Louisiana was a much bigger producer of cotton, and that like moved through New Orleans port and circulated around the globe. Yeah, that's right. And
0: then beef, like with abolition, which is to say, which with the legal abolition of the trade of the importing of Africans, which was not the end of enslavement we know, but like with that, with that actually like Louisiana and Texas, Louisiana turned to cattle raising in Texas Mm -hmm. and, and to, and to actually slaughtering beef along the Mississippi and then Mm -hmm. carrying it up into Illinois. So like actually like there's a whole other commodity Mm -hmm. story around animal slaughter as well.
2: And also just like New Orleans being a hub of, the trade of black bodies from like right. the internal slave trade of the united states like many black bodies many black people were brought to louisiana to fuel that production of cattle sugar and cotton. Really interesting. Also in your book, you talk a bit about the way that the concept of race and racialization is related to like proper eating habits. Like in the second mm-hmm. chapter of your, your book, um, you turn towards bread. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of bread in the production of whiteness in the United States?
0: Sure. I mean, I'm talking to you from Germany right now. And it's, it's my first time in Germany, I'll be here for a month. And the kind of centrality of bread to Northern European, North and Northwestern European cultures is really like, amazing. You can see in the kind of idea of a national of a German national cuisine, like the centrality of bread, the centrality of bread to what is thought of as Germanness, And, you know, wheat, travels with Europeans into the Americas and onto indigenous lands, they're so aggressive about farming wheat and displacing corn that by, you know, I think it's like 10, 15 years into the Massachusetts Bay Colony, they've already like raised the entire bay of land in order to, so like along with wheat, along with European colonization comes certain modes of agricultural monoculture. Terrible for the soils' fertility, terrible for the ecosystem, terrible for all the animal and insect and human and non-human eco- and plant ecologies. So, you know, wheat is sort of at the center of European expand of the European expansionist project from day one, and at the beginning, it's wheat versus corn because corn and maize are indigenous, as you know, indigenous American crops. And there's all sorts of thinking about... Then there's even like a little bit of a flirtation in some art with like corn, like claiming indigenous status for European, you know, what they would call Creole communities, which is to say Europeans who were second generation or third generation born in, in the colonies. But wheat becomes really central. I mean, there's never a moment since the arrival of Europeans into indigenous lands that they're not pushing West. They're just pushing West and pushing West is, you know, I mean, at times it's actually about sugar. They're really like across the 19th century, desperately finding some way to not have to buy sugar from the Caribbean. You can actually see, cause I've been reading in the incredibly boring, but incredibly interesting archive of the department of agriculture in the 19th century, that it's just like, have you figured it out yet? Can we get sugar from beets? Can we get sugar from sorghum? Are we going to do it? Can you do it? Can you do it? No, fuck it. Let's invade Cuba. Like it's like totally like like the conversation in agricultural science is like, are we going to be able to not invade Cuba? No, let's just invade Cuba in 1898. But anyways, so wheat becomes part of that Western settler colonialist expansion, really from the 1830s forward. And so you have writers like I talk about in the second chapter of my book, writers like Sylvester Graham. Who are really pushing wheat and really pushing, he's an interesting figure because, you know, he's a temperance, he's a temperance person, he's he's against drinking, which makes him what we would call a progressive, as they're as they're thought of in the 19th century, right? But he's really pushing wheat as a way to kind of like cure the decadence of white American life as a way of kind of guarding the purity of the Republican project and the pu- but the small r Republican project and the purity of the moral upstandingness of uh, white life by having people eat wheat, which is being farmed, he says, quote, unquote, on virgin soil in the Americas, and not consume vicious foods like spices, like sugar, Like rum, like coffee, like tea, which like, as I talked about earlier, are also kind of foods that come from the the tropics, quote unquote, but are energizing food, like coffee is, you know, caffeinating. I I don't know if he talks about coffee, actually, I think he talks about tea sugar is energizing and he's really about like make good bread so it's it's a he's an interesting figure he was an interesting figure for me partly because he's so funny I mean it's like 19th century like the gloves are off like they'll say anything you know and he actually gains popularity by writing about masturbation masturbation in the the sense in the way that you know people are freaking out about trans kids right now people are freaking out about masturbating kids in in the 18th and 19th century it's just another you know day ending in why it's just another horrible punitive sex panic. And his solution is good diet, good diet, good teaching, surveillance of children. But the less you eat vicious foods from the tropics, the more you eat domestic American produce, the more virtuous your body will be. And bread is at the center of that for him. So I kind of wrote about him. I mean, he's also like stop monoculture, and stop aggressive agricultural expansion. So he's like this weird 1830s incarnation of like the sustainable agriculture dude that drives you nuts. You know what I mean? Like that guy. He's like progressive and, but, and also just kind of like uber white.
2: Yeah. 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 Definitely. And then also, While I was reading your book, I was kind of remarking upon the way that like consumption of bread is kind of put in opposition to like, like non-white food ways, like consumption of corn, consumption of rice, consumption of, what was that word that starts with an F? Farinaceous? Is that? Farinaceous
0: foods. Yeah. Farinaceous
2: foodstuffs that like non-white people consume and like how grain is like this bread is like this exalted food incarnation, that's like, this is the the standard and everything else is kind of like degrees of primitiveness away from bread. So in that way, how is whiteness constructed in opposition to non-white people sure. through food in other sure. ways?
0: Well, you know, the delicacy of the white constitution in the 19th century would be one way of looking at it. I mean, the first thing to say is that it's a mythology, right? Because we know that, you know, Euro-American foodways are completely extractive of Indigenous foodways are complete, like you might look at, for instance, oysters and oyster culture in the Northeast, which is, you know, an Indigenous foodway or through the extraction of black labor and knowledge, like Judith Carney writes in terms of like rice, or in terms of just, you know, culinary uh, labor and culinary brilliance, in terms of the circulation of spices, and so on. So I think I lost track of your original question. But um, oh, oh, yeah, I know. So so I mean, I guess what I would say is the idea of the creation of, of Euro American food is really the production of a mythology about what that food is. And it's self-consciously directed towards Europe, it's self-consciously directed towards ideas of Anglo-Saxon embodiment. It's self-consciously directed, you know, in terms of refinement. I mean, that's part of the Graham story, which is to say that good grain is refined, unlike corn or um, or oats or grits or other kinds of like less, relying, less refined grain foods, uh, rice and, and so on. And, you know, but like other foodways emerge through, you know, through other stories. So we could think, for instance, about like in West Indian food, foods like yam and, and so on are still referred to as provisions. So not only how like various regional African, Afro-Caribbean, African-American foods are shaped through plantation uh, economies but also through plantation ecologies, through plots and, uh, you know, personal plots and subterranean or like subterranean, but like other economic circulation forms, other forms of economic circulation, like Psyche Williams writes about uh, the centrality of chicken and chicken economies to um, black women's emancipation and, and family care projects or one tangent that I didn't really get to spend time with. So it's like a super long passive aggressive footnote in my first book is all about like the incredible archeological work being done on plantations and like, and the kind of stuff that's found when you, when you find like garbage, Pits, like where it was that enslaved peoples dumped their garbage, and how they're finding like fish skeletons and wild boar and wild hare and all that kind of survival brilliance, everyday survival brilliance that enslaved and free peoples were exhibited. And, and, you know, that changes. I mean, sometimes, you know, whiteness is, is never only about whiteness. It's always also about class. A friend of mine, Molly, Molly McGarry at UC Riverside in History, oversaw this fantastic dissertation about fermentation in Appalachia, for instance. And like at the end of the 19th century, after Pasteur, there's all sorts of like freaking out about home home distilling and home fermenting and home fermentation cultures. That's really about attacking working class and rural white and other forms of self, self-sufficiency, self right? Like it's really about sort of getting people folded into industrial capital. So that like fermentation itself, which is actually a really important process for human survival for millennia, whether you're fermenting, you know, whether it's like clabber or whether it's cheese or whether it's beer or whether it's ginger beer or sauerkraut or pickles, like these are all ways that non-elite peoples have survived. And you can see this sort of that the idea of like a refined a Euro-American cuisine is in part shaped through the idea of refinement itself, whether it's the refinement of white sugar or the refinement of white flour, but it's also against poor whites and also against Africans and African-Americans and um, indigenous peoples.
2: So definitely a class-based thing. And also me coming from divinity school, I also was really kind of taken with like the religious not even undertones it's like it's it, it is the tone the religious tone of this and the way that the restrained protestantism that is well the, the dominant american religious perspective yeah. of the time was not only in opposition to like you know different classes in opposition to like different racialized bodies but also very much in opposition to like european decadent food ways and also like religious expression because it was, you know, the European, like ostentatious, um, religious expression that <laughs> was very counter to American Protestantism. Yeah. So also in your book, you mentioned the way that antebellum eating culture may also reflect a kind of nascent foodie, foodie culture contemporary foodie culture. So I'm wondering if you you might elaborate on this point. Sure.
0: I mean, I think you know at the time when I was editing my book, I was living in the Bay Area. I was living close to Santa Cruz and I was sort of very aware of the whiteness of the sustainable agriculture movement and kind of the whiteness. And so I just my question was really at the time like what is the difference between eating local, like localism and nativism? And so I guess that was sort of one part of it. That sort of like that like There's Eat Local, uh, but under Eat Local, at least at that moment, is also kind of like deep Eat American. And, you know, that's not historically Buy American, Eat American, Make America Great Again. The line is not... Pretty crude from one to the next. That's kind of part of it. It was also about the the illusion that there's like a better capitalism. There's a lot of social kind of like commodity social activism in the 19th century. Um, and some of it it's not that it's not well-intentioned, right? So for instance, you would think of uh Quakers or um whose Many of whose baking or sweets, for instance, or preserves were honey-based instead of sugar-based because they simply tried, they tried to simply completely opt out of any economic relation to enslavement. But yeah, so I think just kind of there's sort of like early resonances of like shopping is activism. And again, those aren't like ill intentions. It's just not enough, We have to know that it's not enough, even as we're also always trying to be better. I'm not trying to dump on trying to be better, but I'm trying to say, let's be better. And it's also not enough. And that was sort of my sense of this sort of like nascent foodie culture. But also just, you know, like my problem that there's this kind of like over articulation of class belonging through taste that I'm personally deeply allergic to. Like if I was on a date with someone who wanted to talk about the wine for a long time, I'm out. Shut up. Like, I just don't, I don't want to hear about it, you know, like it's not, I don't. So there's sort of the beginning of that sort of like the importance of knowledge about food for the, just to know about food and to show people that you know about food. And I mean, the irony of ironies is that, that that's what I do for a living. And I have a critique of it. I'm fully aware of, I'm soaking in it, but the articulation of class and a hierarchy through food ways is super uninteresting to me.
2: Interesting. I also think of foodie culture as also having this kind of knowledge of other ethnic food ways that is like almost pretentious, that it's not even almost pretentious, it is frequently pretentious and yeah, condescending and very disconnected to the actual purpose and meaning behind these different ethnic food ways.
0: Yeah, and also, I mean, like a, a ma- like Anita Menor was actually the one Anita who's uh, who's an Asian Americanist feminist uh, at Ohio State, and she articulated it best in her project before I did, which was like, oh, Anita, you got there first. But it was really the question that drove my own work, to, my own interest in the politics of eating instead of the politics of food, which is. Why is it that people are willing to eat the cuisines and know about the cuisines of peoples that they would never want their daughter to marry into? And like, what is eating if that kind of communion with difference is possible, but sexuality is a line that's something else? That's really something that sort of drives my drives the first project.
2: Yes, very much so. And also just like being here in Louisiana, foodie culture is very much a thing, especially in New Orleans. Like there are so many amazing restaurants, but also I guess this isn't quite a fully formed thought. People frequently do not understand where those food ways come from. Right. Or, like fully respect those food ways. <laughs> Sorry.
0: Okay. So no, I mean, loves are off in New Orleans. That's for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Literally the gloves are off and like the food is delicious. Don't get me wrong, but oftentimes it just feels like new Orleans is, is a city that is gentrifying. It is a city that demographically is shifting greatly, not always for the worse, but like the foodie culture in new Orleans now is interesting because it's also very tied into these, gen- like these forces of gentrification that are like pushing out the people who are descendants of people who innovated those food ways in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's just something that's very sad to witness. My family's not from New Orleans, but like my family's from Louisiana, and Louisiana has changed a lot. And also the way that New Orleans is deeply impacted by climate change, right? So these foodie cultural spaces are related to the demographic changes that are the result of these environmental hazards that exist in New Orleans
0: be an example of that for you like what where that sort of intersection of climate disaster and like refined commodity
2: citizenship um so i'm thinking like post katrina a lot of people had to leave and because people had to leave like investors have since come into new orleans and started to like buy up properties and like you know there are a lot of new restaurants coming into new orleans and also just because like new orleans at least it seems to me i'm like I said, my family's not from New Orleans. So I'm a bit of an outsider in this perspective, but because rent is kind of cheaper in New Orleans, like people who want to open restaurants, like it feels like they come to New Orleans or people who want to just invest in property in general. Like they come to New Orleans to buy up like inexpensive property, but like, why is that property inexpensive? It's because, you know, the people who live there could not afford to fix it post environmental disasters. It's not even just post Katrina, but post Ida. Yeah. Cheaper compared to New York, cheaper compared to Chicago, cheaper compared to like Atlanta, even or Houston. Like Houston is like another place that I like, I love to eat in Houston, but also like, let's be real, you know, there's just like cheaper real estate. So it feels like people are able to come to New Orleans and, you know, pursue their restaurateur dreams, but at what cost? Because rent in New Orleans has like very much gone up and, you know, locals in New Orleans are very much being pushed out. Then being pushed out is the result of environmental hazards.
0: Right. Yeah. Also, oh, can we talk about the gentrification of oxtail? Yes.
2: My God, oxtails are so expensive now.
1: So for our listeners, I've been trying to drop in questions or thoughts in the chat, but through this conversation, the most immediate thing that popped up in my head was the gentrification of oxtails and how once upon a time oxtails were trash food and it was only for us. And you know, especially those in the South and from the Caribbean, oxtails are their own thing. And then all of a sudden, somebody from New York discovered oxtails, and when I say New York, meaning non-Caribbean, Southern New York, then it becomes the fact that you have to buy oxtails and they're like 20 bucks a pack. And it's like, are you crazy? I can't. Bones,
0: right? Bones. And it's like, it, yeah. So my next book, I'm going to have a chapter on bones. I grew up with cow foot. I love cow foot. Cow foot, sopa de pata, Peruvians have it. But Cowfoot is great. It's jelly. It's meaty. It's got all the flavor. The hipster carpet baggers have not discovered cowfoot yet, but the clock is ticking. Yeah, they got in on Oxtail really early.
1: Ugh. That's how I feel about pig's feet. So like my mom, she'll make some good pig's feet or pork neck bones or a turkey neck. neck bones or tor- turkey, turkey necks. Neck. A good turkey neck in a boil. Yes, ma'am, and like that's also in Louisiana has its own crazy mix of race things as well because it's also poor whites who use that stuff to season up their foods, but then once yeah. they're gentrified by those who have that extra class issue, like you've been talking about this whole time, yeah, um, it's really interesting. And what yeah. are they looking
0: for? I mean, like what first of all why are they so hungry and like, what are they looking for? They're just, there's like this experience of realness or like, what would you like, what's the word? Like these dudes with the Abrahamic beards and their like artisanal butcher shops and stuff like that. What are you looking for? You're looking for some sort of the oldie butcher, shoppy, authentic, like what are they looking for that they didn't already have? I don't get it.
2: I also just feel like, oftentimes I feel like whiteness is, searching for adventure, searching for new experience and that those new experiences are at the cost, like at the expense of non-white people and like experiences with kind of like exotic foodstuffs also feels like something that people are frequently seeking out.
0: They should do it deeper into the European roots. You know, it wasn't until I spent time, this is, this is going to sound so dumb, but It wasn't and you know, my father was English. And so I like I went to see his, uh, it wasn't until I spent time in Europe, that I ever understood that white people were indigenous to anywhere. Yes. (laughs) Right? Like, because you go and you're like, Oh, I I recognize that shape head. I recognize that shape face. I recognize that, like that there is like a genus and um, a history there. And I had just always thought of it whiteness until i like i spent i think i was really in my 20s or something when i was spending time in england with my father's family and my my father's english irish and oh like for me in fact whiteness has always been like miasmatic like it's mm-hmm. always been environmental it's yeah. it's always been the condition of the space that i'm in with these people that are everywhere dictating the conditions of everything that I'm living in and they're not from anywhere they're just yeah. the environment and it was like really when I came to Europe that I was like oh you're from
2: a place yeah so it's like america is kind of like is. the homogenization of all like white ethnicities yeah a um, uh, shifting towards becoming white because like not all white people actually were white when they arrived like italians right. and germans and so on and like this aspirational whiteness that like Europeans arriving on American soil had, like they lost a lot of like those cultural legacies that they they could have maintained and had and explored their own food ways. But <laughs> circling back to yeah. the environment, you mentioned monocropping earlier in our conversation. And I'm wondering if we can talk a bit about how your work is in conversation with environmental concerns.
0: So I I work in conversation with a like a philosophical school that uh, some people call the new materialism, and there is a very I've written on it. In Lateral Magazine, but Métis scholar Zoe Todd has written a very great critique of this turn towards a new materialism, which is a kind of taking seriously of the kind of active, meaning-making life, the non-human world at all times or trying to like trying to get as close to that as uh as as one can there's a great indigenous critique of this so-called new materialism which is to say like oh really you just discovered that the world is animated and agentic welcome motherfuckers you know like there's that right that is one of the frames that i'm working in and specifically i think that this rise in western philosophy of like And I would say that it's very much post-Katrina of a concern with the matter of the world is a kind of deep inability for people to articulate their realization that the Mother Earth is coming for us, you know, and she's mad. Like, and that there's that whether you want to call it the Anthropocene or you want to call it the Plantationocene or the Capitalocene, or Donna Haraway calls it the Compostocene, which has its own critiques, like the centrality of the human and the production of the human in and through racial modernity is a part and parcel of our horrible treatment of our non human kin and the planet. And that I guess that I would say these are none of those are my original thoughts. I think Indigenous feminists, Indigenous peoples, Indigenous philosophers—you uh, know—that that have been making these arguments for generations, and we and and people have not been listening. And so that's I guess that's kind of at the sort of heart of what I'm doing in, in my new book. The the new book is about thinking with matter, and it it takes its central conceit from the black sociologist Kathy Cohen's like super important essay deviance as resistance. So my, my book really is thinking about matter as resistance and different how different kinds of forms of matter become affiliated with people always already seen as, as deviant. So one of them is fermentation, one is intoxication, which is a kind of related to fermentation in a lot of ways, and another is rot, which is like the next stage after fermentation, which is fermentation you don't want to eat, you know. And then the other is jelly or or gelatinousness. And so I think with these kinds of forms of matter that have been affiliated with like deviance, non whiteness, non sexual normativity, non gender normativity, poverty, white poverty, and, and also not white poverty, and uh, you know the queers and so forth. Dis- disabled people's, but not that I'm able to kind of like fully encompass all that, but I'm trying and trying as much as I can. And as against those forms of deviant matter, I have this first historical chapter where I look at the rise of the Department of Agriculture. And the Department of Agriculture is founded in 1860, either 1861 or 1862. It's in the middle, at the beginning of the Civil War, it's founded by Lincoln. Department of Agriculture is created at the same time as the Morrill and the Hatch Acts are passed, which is to say the creation of land-grant universities and also the granting of land to free men, free and not enslaved men and non-slaveholding men, so basically white men of the North. And so this kind of like rise of the Department of Agriculture is, is about the coming together of like state power and the state need to regulate a population and to have enough food for the population and to control the land and to be extracting as much land as possible, and then to be extracting as much energy from people as possible. And I'm sort of interested in how the rise of the Department of Agriculture is very specifically about the seizing and displacement of sovereign indigenous nations from their lands, and not just sovereign indigenous nations, but also their ways of life and their philosophies and their languages and their future generations and their cultures and what they cultivated and created in in the land themselves um, that Western, you know, that Western expansion could not see was there as cultivation. And how that changed life at a kind of state level, but also kind of at a molecular level because the rise of state agriculture is also the rise of state science. And it's the rise of an attempt to manage life all the way down to the cellular and bacterial level from the you know, massive agricultural extraction down to like, you know, cellular, molecular, chemical, biochemical units. So that's what I write about. And that's really for me, that's the story of the book. And I'm interested in how this sort of like massive energy management project, which like, you know, somebody would might call somebody named Michelle Foucault might call biopower, right? Or zoopower is another is another way word that people have used leads us to this moment.
2: Yeah, definitely. Okay. <laughs> I look forward to reading your new work. It sounds so interesting.
0: I look forward to reading it too, because I've been sitting with it for 10 years and I never <laughs> look at it again.
2: <laughs> That's a long project, but never, I look forward never again being able to just put it down. <laughs> yeah. So actually you already kind of went through the last question that I had for you, which is for the last year, you've been on sabbatical. And I was wondering what you've been up to, but you you said that you're kind of wrapping up this 10-year book project
0: now. Uh, Wrapping up 10-year book project, well, promotion, it was my book for promotion to full and so hopefully it'll be out in proofs in the spring of 24 and out in the fall of 25 it's called deviant matter and also just been kind of like laying the foundation for the next book so i wrote an essay for the los angeles review of books last year on boba which is you know about the kind of circulation of commodities um in and through kind of colonialism and and thinking about the kind of history of the senses um in like sylvia winter's sense which is also a marxist sense so i'm starting starting to outline that book as well
2: you said the history of boba like boba tea like mm-hmm. the tapioca pearls yeah okay Wow. Okay, well, mm-hmm. I look forward to looking out Thank for you. your work. Do you have any closing thoughts or remarks for our audience?
0: I mean, it's a, it's a good time to be, there's a lot of kind of great thinking out there on food and on writing and, and on kind of the history of race in American history. And like some good people to think with are um, Cynthia Greenlee, who is a historian trained at UNC, who's, you know, writing about Black foodways, and then also Psyche um, Williams Forsen, Psyche Williams Forson's book on Black foodways and shame that that just came out. She just won a James Beard Award three weeks ago. So yeah, it's, it's a good time to be thinking. Um, there's some really great writing out there and people should check it out.
2: Well, thank you so much. Thanks,
1: Erin. Thank you for tuning in to Tilling the Soil. For more information on the podcast or Whitney Plantation, go to WhitneyPlantation.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Other handles can be found in the description. Thanks for listening.